Hello, folks. Welcome to Holding On With Hope, where I talk to interesting people about interesting topics. My name is Steve Holder, and I am your host. My guest this evening is Arturo Vasquez, and we'll be talking about PTSD, and then we're going to have a little fun and talk about professional wrestling. So, welcome, brother. Glad to have you with me. Thanks, sir. Uh, like I said, I appreciate you uh, having me on today. I'm glad I do. So, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. How would you describe yourself? Um, so I joined the military when I was 17. And, uh, you know, like it was it was right around, it was 2005. So I had this real shot of patriotism kind of running through me. Uh, you know, still, I was in school when the 9-11 attacks happened um, on the way to a junior ROTC class. So, you know, I get in there and I didn't even want to do the ROTC thing at first, to be honest with you. Uh, but I get into the class and, you know, they explain to us what's happening and I'm just like, okay, you know what, this seems like something that I might be able to, to really wrap my head around. Uh, Cause you know, again, it was a, it was a shot of patriotism that I had that I'd never had before. Um, fast forward a couple of years and I just really fell in love with the military lifestyle. So when I was 17, I got a waiver to join the military and I joined as a paralegal uh, which at the time I had told my mom, uh, that it, you know, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. You know, it's just a paralegal to sit behind a desk and not do much. Um, and it was, it, it's been a really wild ride doing that. Um, at the top of the show, you, you started off mentioning we were going to talk about PTSD. Uh, most of my PTSD actually comes through secondhand from my time as a paralegal in the army. Uh, so when I was growing up, you know, I always heard about PTSD and shell shock of, you know, the, uh, the World War II era. And I didn't understand that it was something that wasn't just a wartime issue. Yeah. Uh, I thought that, you know, you had to be blown up to have PTSD. Uh, you had to, um, you know, experience combat to have PTSD. As you start to get more invested in learning about the disorder, um, you find out that victims of, that there are so many PTSD victims in America from Americans. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna uh, agitate or bring up too, too much of a trigger warning for some people, but, you know, assault victims are one of the highest groups of people, highest percentage of people, excuse me, that had PTSD that went undiagnosed until the last 10 years. Yeah. Because uh, as a society, I think we really just interpreted PTSD as just being a wartime issue. And now, you know, luckily we've gotten uh, a lot more cognizant of, you know, who all can be affected by this. Yeah. So how old were you when you first were diagnosed with PTSD? Uh, I was actually 20. So uh, I want to kind of give a disclaimer real quick. Uh, I'm going to talk about something very graphic and very uncomfortable for a couple of minutes, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, like I said, my job was uh, as a paralegal when I was in the Army. And 
uh, when I was 18, I arrived at my first duty station and this was in 2006. So it was a very uh, exciting time for the internet. But on the other side of that, uh, it was a very new time for the law as it pertained to governing the internet. And this is where the trigger warning comes in. One of my first cases uh, involved uh, pictures and videos of underage kids we were charging a soldier. And I had to look through, you know, I was sitting there with the attorney and I was looking through all this stuff with the attorney. And I went up to my boss one day and I said, hey, this is really difficult. And I'll never forget it. She said, hey, uh, you'll be fine. I get paid too much to look at that right now. And that always stuck with me because it really impacted the way that I led my soldiers when I was in charge of soldiers. You know, I always said, I'll never put someone in that situation. Um, and, and so that impacted me that way. But I didn't realize that it had a lot of um, influence on my development just as a human. You know, I'm 18, I'm looking at these vile photos, these, you know, I'm listening to the videos. Um, you know, we're taking notes on how to charge everything. Um, and, you know, just to clarify, this wasn't like a, oh, let's just sit down and pop this in and watch it. You know, like we're actually gathering evidence and watching as little of it as we can. And in my, uh, I've been married twice. In my first marriage, when I would try and talk to my spouse about that, you know, she would say, well, I don't want to hear about that, you know. Like, all right, fine. So I'm going to internalize it. And then I got deployed to Iraq. And Iraq, my experience in Iraq, I was very fortunate. Um, did not leave my installation. We did not really catch any incoming fire or any, any rounds or anything like that when I was in Iraq. It was a, it was honestly, it was a pleasant experience, all things considered. Uh, but I hadn't really dealt with the trauma of, you know, the cases that I was working. Yeah. Uh, when I came back, I got divorced, I got remarried, and at the time, the Army was very big on prescribing narcotics for just about anything. Um, I hurt my knee. Sorry I'm saying um so much, by the way. It's, I'm not used to talking about this, so I'm just okay. kind of recalling it. So I had hurt my knee, and they had given me Vicodin and a medicine called trazodone. And as I progressed through the next couple of months, I didn't realize it, but I was starting to get addicted to these things. Yeah. Well, when I got married the second time, uh, my wife wanted me to, you know, she, she wanted me to at least be able to talk to her about these things. Like, hey, this is what's going on. This is, you know, how I'm feeling. So I would start to kind of open up and then she would go to bed and I wouldn't be able to sleep. So I'd take the sleeping medicine I had. And then I would go to work. You know, I'd be surrounded by all this stuff. I'd come home, I'd talk, and then the sleeping medicine wouldn't work so well. So I'd start drinking alcohol. So all of this stuff kind of led to me going to the mental health professionals uh, in, the, in March of 2008. And I just laid all this stuff out said, hey, this is what I've got going on. And he said, yeah, you have PTSD. I said, well, I can't have PTSD. I've never 
been in combat. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking and I had a daughter at the time. It was, it impacted me so much that I couldn't do things that a dad typically does. I couldn't change my daughter without getting like this, this uneasy feeling in my stomach. And not just cause this kid was blowing up diapers either. Um, I couldn't get, I couldn't give her a bath without feeling uncomfortable. You know, she's a baby baby, but whenever I would try and even lay down on the couch and, you know, just kind of hold her, I was unable to bond because I was being taken back to these pictures, these videos, these interviews, these sound bites. And it really impacted me being able to be a father early on. So around the time I turned 21, I turned to a much more unhealthy coping mechanism to just get through the days, you know, because I don't want to be the punk that, I don't want to be the punk soldier that has to go talk to mental health people. And I didn't even get blown up. Yeah. So uh, I turned to, like I said, alternative means to try and fix it. And that led me to uh, overdose in October of 2008. So I've got this PTSD diagnosis. I've got, I'm an inpatient facility. And my boss comes down and she says, hey, you're deploying in a month to Afghanistan. And it just all kind of hit me. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here. I, I got this baby that I don't barely even know. I'm on my second marriage that, you know, I'm obviously failing her. And now I've got to get ready to go and, you know, deploy to a country I've never been to. I'm trying to get sober. I'm trying to deal with all of these emotions. And I decided the best thing to do would be to push it down because that's the way in my head it would work best. Yeah, just suck it up and go on, right? Yes, sir. Just suck it up and just move forward. So... I come out of the hospital and then I deploy within a month, like she told me I would. And when I deployed, I was, uh, I had a group of soldiers I was in charge of and we would sit down and we would talk. Uh, we would go out on convoys. We would come back. We would just sit down and talk. You know, it's my experiences. I came back. So my experiences were obviously much better than other people's you know, have been. I came back with all of my limbs, all of my extremities. Uh, very thankful for that. So a person who didn't come back with us, I was sitting down talking to him one day. And, you know, I said, it's weird because ever since I've been over here, I've been sleeping better. And he asked me to kind of open up a little bit more. So I kind of, you know, peeled the curtain back a little bit. And he said, yeah, man, that's PTSD. They teach you all about that when you go to the mental health here. And I, I kept resisting it. This isn't PTSD. And we came back, we redeployed. And I got put into another prosecution job where I'm dealing with similar cases. And I start noticing I'm losing sleep again. And I start drinking alcohol again. But in my mind, it can't be PTSD. PTSD only comes from combat. Yeah. And then I got sent to Fort Bragg. I actually asked to go to a place called Fort Bragg. It's one of the largest army installations that America has. And I went there and instead of doing prosecution, I was doing defense. So now we're defending uh, these people that are accused of these crimes. And 
one day I walked into uh, my boss, a gentleman named Sean Foster. I walked into him and I said, hey, uh, I don't know if I'm okay right now. You know, and I kind of walked him through like, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. And he didn't even hesitate. Like he took the entire stigma out of behavioral health for me. He said, oh yeah, you need to go talk to somebody. And then just went back to what he was doing. Like it was a normal conversation. Yeah. So by him doing that though, it took the stigma out of it for me. And I went and I talked to somebody and they said, yeah, you've never dealt with this. And that was, that was eight years ago. And I still go once every three or four months. Cause I, I still do legal work. So I still see that side of people, but you know, I sleep now, I communicate much better than I used to. And I talk to my kids like a father, as opposed to talking to my kids, like someone who thinks the world is out to get them. Yeah. So that that's kind of, without getting too, too graphic, that's kind of my journey so far with PTSD. It's, it's been very difficult, but it's been very, I'm very thankful to have gone through things the way that I did because I've lived so many, this is a horrible way to handle this, situations that I can impart that on some people, I hope, and just say, yeah, you know, turn into the bottle is not really the right way to do it. Turn into, yeah. you know, these, these outside sources isn't the right way to do it. You know, you should sit down and talk to somebody. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the stigma because there is a lot of stigma attached to not only PTSD, but depression, anxiety, and any mental illness, you know, and people act like, well, it's, it's some horrible thing. And some people will say, well, you're just crazy. And, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, I know what it's like to go through that. I had my own struggles with alcohol and drugs for a long time, uh, but for the grace of God and what I learned in a wonderful 12 step program, I, been clean and sober for 36 years. Well, congratulations. That doesn't, that doesn't so make me great, but it sure makes me grateful, you know? And uh, so I, I was a very depressed, very anxious child. You know, I grew up with a lot of depression and anxiety. And like you, I found out that I could get some relief with alcohol and drugs, you know? And I thought for a long time, I found the solution. And, you know, I thought that was the solution, but it turned out that's, that's a big problem, you know? Yes, sir. It has a way of turning on you. And I think the, the part about it for me, at least, that caught me off guard is I, I still can't pinpoint when I stopped using drugs to cope and when I started to need drugs to function. Yeah. It was such a slippery slope. I don't remember. I can't pinpoint even a time frame. Yeah. Well, I'm convinced I was an alcoholic by the time I was 18. And you now it just kept getting worse and worse. But these, there was even times as a teenager that I tried to quit. But I couldn't. You know, but I thought it was okay. You know? I told myself that nobody can become an alcoholic without drinking liquor every day. I was mostly a beer drinker, so I thought, we, I'm good. No, 
<laughs> Did you encounter uh, also the stigma around it when you started doing the 12-step program? Uh, to some degree, to some degree, yeah. You know, the, my drinking buddies that I thought were my friends, when I said, well, I'm going to AA and I'm trying to stay sober, they said, well, just drink one, you know. You know how they are. Yes, sir. And, and they say some really idiotic things out of their ignorance. Uh, well, now I talk about it freely. It's, you know, it's part of my life now. It's part of my history. And, and like you, it's made me a better person. Just getting through it. But to getting through it's the hell part. You know? Yes, sir. For, for me personally, uh, the 12-step program did not work for me. Really? Uh, it, and that's not a knock on the 12-step program. Uh, I'm a very big advocate of the 12 steps. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. And anybody who can make it all the way through, uh, just so much respect for you and people that have made the program work, you know, for every day. Because I think an, an unhealthy idea of recovery is, well, he completed the 12 steps, he's cured. But you're really working the 12 steps every day. Yeah. And you go from one to 12 it's every day. It's a way of life, yeah. Yes, sir. So like I said, I, I couldn't do it. The 12 steps for me, I couldn't do it. But uh, just so much respect for you and the people who have made it work. Well, thank you. And the same right back to you. Any way that you learn to live without drugs and alcohol after going through that hell, you know, it's my hat's off to anybody that does that. Because that's, you go through hell before you can get anything good yes sir my uh my oldest daughter i remember waking up in the hospital uh, when i od'd and she was like sitting on me um because you know it, it's me and i remember seeing the doctors around and i see her she's right there i'm like oh crap you know but my very first thought was who is this child yeah and you know her mom came up to me and she goes hey i love you i will always love you but if you ever do this again, you're never gonna see her grow up except through pictures. And I said, well, all right, that, that's, that's fair. And I will also obviously be stopping this. And, you know, people, when I tell people that story, sometimes they're like, oh, why would she say that? Cause she didn't want her daughter being raised by a drug addict. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like I, yeah. it, it, I, I, one of my biggest, regrets in life. I don't have a lot of regrets. One of my biggest regrets in life is that I put her in that situation to have to say, hey, you have to choose between this child and this illness. Yeah. But I'm very thankful that she did because, you know, my daughter, uh, my daughter actually lives with me. She's 13 now. It's she's my best friend. And I wouldn't have any relationship with her had her mom not said, hey, you've got to stop this right now because I don't think I'd even be alive today. Yeah. Sometimes that tough love is required, you know, and it takes guts for somebody to say something like that. And but like you say, she had to be desperate to do that. Yeah. Yes, sir. So do you still feel like you're trying to get over those things that happened to you back then? Uh, I'm in a weird place right now. So I, I think I've accepted. Uh, well, let me back up. I've accepted that I made the choice to join the army. I accepted that I 
made the choice to choose the job I did. And I accepted that this was a part of those jobs or the job that I did. And I think I've gotten to a point where I've accepted that these horrible things were stuff that I had to go through, you know, better me than someone else. I think I haven't made peace with the fact that American soldiers were committing these crimes because it completely shattered my ideal of the American military member. So that, that's where I'm at. I'm still trying to reconcile the vision of what I thought the American military was. It's not a bash on the military. I'm trying to reconcile that image with what this small group of people did while in the military. And that, I think that's my biggest struggle right now. Are you talking about people that uh, committed torture on the other people? Uh, people who committed the torture, people who uh, I've helped do prosecution for, because attorneys prosecute. I just, you know, I, I run paperwork. Yeah. And, but people that we've prosecuted for torture, uh, I've been a part of crimes, are trials where the crimes, again, involve children or underage people. And those ones are the ones that I still am kind of working my way through. Yeah. Uh, in 2019, we had a case where I went and sat with my attorney and we interviewed a coroner who did an autopsy for a baby that was nine weeks old. And, you know, I bring that up because a couple of weeks ago, I had a dream about the autopsy and I woke up and I didn't sleep again for, I was probably close to 30 something hours. Yeah. Cause you know, you, you just, the, the human brain, I don't think, was meant to see certain things. Yeah, you just can't unsee something after you've seen it like that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and the baby was a victim of abuse. So when, you know, she's like, well, there's bruising here, there's bruising here, there's this laceration. And it was very, I was very numb to it at the time. Uh, I just kind of like pushed it down. And now that I'm really embracing recovery, I'm starting to like reopen those wounds and I'm just like, man, this is, this is a lot to reconcile, at least for me personally. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you gotten through it so you can have a good life now, especially have your daughter with you. That's good. It's, I'm always glad to see people get through hellish circumstances and, you know, all the trauma and drama and, whatever it is, and it's because I know it's not easy. And a lot of people don't get to it. A lot of people, I'm sure you know some that never get out of that hell. And that's really, really sad. Yes, sir. Sad. The, the, to kind of segue into something that you mentioned earlier, uh, when I was inpatient, they had a little library we would go over and we could get books and read them because they didn't want us to have our phones. I mean, we didn't have smartphones of the level they have now. Yeah. They didn't want us texting people, you know, texting our dealers or whatever. So there was a book over there. It was called uh, Stealing Life and Cheating Death. And it was by Eddie Guerrero. Uh, I remember reading that book and I'm like, man, this, this man became a world champion. Yeah. You know, he became... Uh, WWE Hall of Famer. He went through some of the same stuff I went through. Yeah. 
you know, I'm reading it. And then I read a book called To Be the Man by Ric Flair. Yeah, he was and the Rick man. Flair, <laughs> he was the man and he lived that lifestyle. And, I, you know, I'm looking through it, I'm like, well, he made it work too, you know? So I, I read these two books and then a, a professional wrestler named CM Punk starts to hit the national stage. And I could not have been a bigger fan of CM Punk. And he said something one day. He said, hey, I am straight edge because I'm better than you. And when he said that, you know, I was watching it. I'm sitting there and I'm looking around like nobody else is getting offended by this. Okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) So, you know, when I would think about uh, relapse and, and I did obviously have relapses, but after a while, when I would think about relapsing, I'd be like, I'm not gonna let the dude on TV be better than me just because he doesn't need to do this, you know? And I was able to turn a, a sincere love that I had for professional wrestling into kind of a coping tool to get through, you know, the urges and the, the needs for the addiction. There's a lot of professional wrestlers past and present that have gone through huge struggles with alcohol and or drugs and PTSD and all kinds of trauma. So yeah, it's, I have a lot of respect for professional wrestlers. You know, I mean, a lot of people say, well, that's just fake. How can you watch it? I say, well, it's entertainment. When you watch a movie, you don't think all of that's true, but you enjoy it. You yes, know, sir. and these people are entertainers, but they're also tremendous athletes. You know, and a lot of them are extremely intelligent. They go on to become writers and actors. Look at The Rock. He's probably the biggest star in Hollywood nowadays. Yes, sir. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot of fun in professional wrestling. And I noticed on your Facebook page, you're a fan of Orange Cassidy. Huge fan of Orange Cassidy. Yes, sir. (laughs) He's something else, isn't he? It's it's so hard. (laughs) You know, I, I've watched, I've been watching wrestling for basically 30 years. Yeah. But I've watched clips and interviews and segments from the 60s on. And Orange Cassidy is something that I've never seen before, which is unique. Yeah. yeah. He found a way to be unique in an absolutely saturated environment. And that's, that's motivating to me. Yeah. The entertaining is all hell in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way he does all the things he does with his hands in his pocket, like, you know, it's no big deal. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, it's super cool. Yes, sir. So, there, uh, it's that, and, you know, we have options now to watch professional wrestling. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't always like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember my, my dad got me into professional wrestling when I was a kid. Uh, back then, you know, we had black and white TVs and not very, two or three channels. And on Saturday afternoon, we would watch professional wrestling. And it was just really cool. And my mom, she would get up and leave the room. She's, oh, they're killing each other. They're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I grew up watching, you know, the old timers. I remember as a teenager watching Black Jack Mulligan. You remember him? Yes, sir. Rick Flair and Arn Anderson, the, the Anderson brothers. Yeah, Arnold. Wahoo McDaniel. Do you remember him? Yes, sir. He was a good one. He was a good one. 
and Ric Flair would say things like it, it's a it's incredible to me that people don't realize the impact that Ric Flair as an individual has had on 2021 culture you know when you talk about the the wearing of the jewelry and you talk about well I've got this many chains and I've got these expensive shoes this started with Ric Flair saying that he had alligator shoes that were worth your mortgage payment <laughs> you know, it, you know, uh, people say, well, you know, I've got these smartwatches and it became a symbol of where you're at in society. Well, yeah, Ric Flair was uh, wheeling and dealing in Rolexes, telling us that he was better than us because of it. That's to me, I can draw a straight line to Ric Flair to a lot of the things that have become societal norms today. And it's just it's yeah. it's really amazing to me to look at those parallels. Yeah. I think he got a lot of his uh, ideas from uh, Jesse Ventura, you know. Yes, sir. I remember one issue uh, that Jesse Ventura was having, you know, he interviewed the guy asking me, he said, well, Jesse, how come you never smile? And Jesse says, tough men don't have to smile. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I think uh, I think you're 100% right. Him and classy Freddie Blass. Yeah. The, they, they just... The thing about professional wrestling for me is you take personality traits and you just magnify it by 100. Magnify them, yeah, tremendously. Yes, sir. And it's been it's been one of the few consistent joys I've had in every phase of my life yeah. would be, yeah, I can, I can watch professional wrestling. Yeah. And I've always got this to go back to. And, you know, you people say- road well, warrior shirt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, every time I look over, I keep looking over at it like, I wonder what's on the bottom of that. So <laughs> that was that was great. Uh, <laughs> so when you when you think about professional wrestling, though, uh, well, what, what what is some what are some of the fond memories that you look back on? Is it the sitting down and watching it on TV? Is it the going in person and being in the atmosphere? What is what is the the things that you look back on fondly? All of it. All of it. You know, I remember. Uh, you remember Ronnie Garvin, I, I suppose. Yes, sir. He used to wrestle in the city I'm in, Johnson City, Tennessee. He would wrestle live here, and I would see him sometimes. And Macho Man Randy Savage, I saw him live, and he was a, he was so different in person. He was a real short guy. He was only about five foot eight or something like that. Yes, sir. When That's I was what a heard. teenager, I was taller than he was, you know. But he looks so bigger than life on TV. Uh, we used to have a. Do you remember Ron and Don Wright? Have you ever heard of them? They I don't think so. They didn't make national fame like WWE or anything, but they were they were heels. They were brothers, you know, in this area, and they had this thing with a cigar. And I they bring a cigar into the ring, and it always looked like they were burning the eyes out of the somebody and they'd stick it up there and they'd go, you know, and as a teenager, I believed that was real. You know, I'm thinking, how come the light don't arrest them? How do they get away with this crap? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. In, in the, uh, I want to say it was the late nineties, uh, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin had a program together and yeah. there was uh, Brian Pillman is one of my top 10 favorite wrestlers easily. And one of the, the program I'm talking about is very well known. Uh, he shot a pistol in his home towards Steve Austin. And I remember thinking 
well, so, well, obviously somebody's going to jail. You know, like they, they, obviously they're going to be arrested. And then the next week they were just, they're cutting a promo and I'm like, all right, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> something yeah. about this isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, there's always seems to be a lot of strange things happening backstage, don't they? It's, it's a weird place to be backstage, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know, when I look back at just kind of professional wrestling in general, uh, the, the match that I don't remember what the first wrestling match I ever saw was, but I know what the first wrestling match I remember is. And it was Mr. Perfect versus Bret Hart at SummerSlam. And I remember, you know, buying into the kayfabe and it was an amazing wrestling match. When I got older and I started to learn the backstory, you know, Mr. Perfect is dealing with the back injury. Uh, Brett has to kind of walk him through certain spots and everything. It just, it made it so much more of a moment for me because these people are going through this tremendous physical pain. They're performing in front of millions of people, thousands live. Yeah. And they're able to just, keep going just keep pushing it was something yeah. that they loved and some of them really do get injured during, during the matches and they just keep on going look at all the things that mick foley put his body through over the years man it's it's amazing he can even move <laughs> i to this day don't know how mick foley functions uh <laughs> just just generally speaking yeah i remember cactus jack and then there was mankind and <laughs> yes, sir. And dude love. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the Hardy brothers, especially Rick Hardy, he's, you know, he's done some amazing things. When you look back, do you think that the, you talk about the Hardy brothers and you think about the Steiners and Harlem Heat and Arn and Ole Anderson, do you think that the state of wrestling today is too, focused on the big moves and not enough on the small storytelling? Yeah, it's at a lot faster pace, you know, and it's, they don't do, you know, they're fooling the referee, doing all these things. It's like there's no rules nowadays, you know? Yeah. Yes, sir. And yeah, those, those storylines were better back then. You know, some of them nowadays are just so ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I think it's also, I think the audience, the targeted audience for professional wrestling, I'm starting to leave that age group. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that a lot of it is, it changed with the target audience's consumption of media. And, you know, I'm still, you know, I'll sit down and I'll be watching it and I'll get really into it and I'll wait for somebody to say, hey, you know, that's fake, right? Well, it's real to me, damn it. Like how, <laughs> it's real entertainment <laughs> it is real entertainment and you know my daughter said something that I will take with me for a very long time and this happened this year she was watching a YouTube video of someone else playing a video game and I said hey that doesn't make any sense why are you watching someone play a game and she goes I don't know why do you watch football that's a great question. And that is now also my response to when people say, well, why do you watch that? I don't know. Why do you watch football? You're not playing it. And just let me be here. Yeah. Why do you watch that movie? I mean, that's actors there. Yeah. 
Sting, he was great. Well, he's coming back now, you know. He's, he doesn't do the wild moves he used to, of course, but he's he's back at it again. Yes, sir. Last night he uh, performed at a pay-per-view. He's 60-something years old, and he jumped off of a 10-foot platform and landed really? on two people. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, and he got up. You know, he did his whole ah uh, thing, and he got back in the ring. I think I dislocated my back trying to get out of bed this morning. So uh, he's a, just a better human than I am in general. Yeah. Now, Ricky Morton, you remember the Rock and Roll Express? Yes, sir. Ricky Morton lives in my area, and he's got a wrestling school called the School of Morton around here. And he still wrestles sometimes, but it's not different. He's got a big pot belly, and he moves really, really slow. And he tries to say he's in his prime, but he's <laughs> he's way past it. <laughs> he, I saw him. One of the coolest things that made me – because there, there are times where I just start to get really annoyed with the wrestling, yeah. uh, specifically WWE. Yeah. And I'll start to, like, navigate away from it. And I saw a video of Ricky Morton doing a move called a Canadian Destroyer, which is where he stands up, he puts the opponent's uh, bends over, and he puts their head between their legs, and he does a front flip with the opponent, and it looks like a spike pile driver. And the entire move is on the person receiving it. And he, he executed the move one time, and I was like, oh, my God, he looks like a million bucks right now. Yeah. And, you know, when you hear the team that he was going – him and uh, I forget the other – the other – I forget Ricky Morton's partner, but – Bobby – Robert Gibson. Robert Gibson. So I always want to say, yeah, it's Bobby Eaton. So uh, you talk – you look at the team that just went against them, and they're like, you know, this was an honor for us. And, you know, we were so happy to be able to share the ring with these guys. And there's just a level of respect in professional wrestling that you just don't see in other parts of society. Yeah. You know, it's not about the rookie trying to come and take the veteran starting position. Yeah. So I, I just, I've always really admired that part of the business yeah. as well. That reminds me of a match I saw between The Undertaker and Triple H. Do you remember that one? Yes, sir. Uh, there was a lot of respect there, and Shawn Michaels was the referee. That was yes, a sir. great match. Well, it's one of the endearing images of wrestling because they're just all up on the ramp at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great – I remember watching that live. Or I wasn't there, but I remember watching it on TV as it was happening, and I'm teary-eyed. Yeah, and The Undertaker, I lost count of how many times he's retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Undertaker is definitely the Brett Favre of professional wrestling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he definitely had a long ride, that's for sure. Yes, sir. Uh, watching Undertaker got me interested in motorcycles. Yeah. <laughs> His character evolved in a very interesting way. You know, he ended up being a biker, but he started out being this kind of a uh, mortician, I don't know, half-dead person or something, you know, with Paul Bearer, and, and it was really weird back then. It's totally different. And, and people that try and knock me for like a professional wrestling, they'll bring that up to like, well, The Undertaker's changed so much. Okay, you used to wear diapers. You changed too. <laughs> Let me enjoy yeah. what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's nice watching them go through the changes, you know, and it's kind of like we grow with them. It's interesting. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Hart, he was great. It was really, really tragic what happened to Owen Hart. I know you know about that. He died trying to come down from the ceiling on a rope. And it kind of got me all pissed off of Vince because they went on with the show that night. I was just about to say that. Yes, sir. They went on with the show. And uh, I don't think Bret Hart ever really got over that. He was mad at Vince for a long time over that. Understandably. Absolutely. Yeah. And people who's your about... favorite? Who's your favorite of all time? Um, okay, that's a good question. Thank you for that question. Um, honestly, I, I just think Ric Flair is the ultimate professional wrestler. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you're talking about you know, the best promo, the person I think spoke the best, it was CM Punk. The best technical wrestler I've ever seen in my life was probably Bret Hart, as we've mentioned. Uh, the best look I've ever seen uh, for a professional wrestler was probably Triple H. But Ric Flair had all of that. Yeah. And, you know, he, Ric Flair, you hated him for who he was, but you wanted to be him in the same breath. Enjoyed hating him, yeah. Yes, sir. And it just, he made wrestling funny. He still does sometimes. Yeah. He still pops and then, up and just makes it great. And then there was the, whoo. Oh. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, I, that was great. The last wrestling event I went to was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And yeah. his daughter, yeah. Charlotte, ironically, yeah. she came out. And that environment was unlike anything I've ever experienced, you know. Yeah. And sure it was. It's just, it's it's an amazing thing. You know, it, people think that I basically replaced or substituted one addiction for a much healthier one. You know, yeah. the the high that I used to get um, doing things I shouldn't be doing now when I'm in a crowd, although I haven't been in a crowd of anyone uh, since, you know, last year for global reasons. Yeah. But when you're in the crowd and the music hits and it's you and your kid and this person, their kid. And we don't know if the parents or the kids are screaming louder, but we know that we're all there. You know, it's, it's an amazing adrenaline rush. It's a high that I really cherish and yeah. uh, I'm very thankful for. Yeah. I always say it's like cartoons for adults, you know, real life cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very appropriate uh, comparison because I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons and then Saturday afternoon wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And do you remember the Monday Night Wars when WCW and WWF back in, you know, they had a thing going, didn't they? That yes, sir. A big it, rivalry. It was, I was so invested emotionally in the Monday Night War. Um, when I was growing up, the deal that I had with my parents was that I could stay up and watch Monday Night Nitro if I made the honor roll. So <laughs> that helped you make the honor roll, didn't it? I became really smart really quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, and it just like I said, it it's something that I talk about very fondly and with the same uh, reverence that I talk about addiction and recovery. 
is the same emotion, the same reverence I put into professional wrestling. Because to me, they're inner, they're interchanged or they're interlinked in my life. Yeah. And a lot of the wrestlers are extremely intelligent and well-educated. Like Glenn Jacobs, for example, Kane, he is, um, he lives down the road about a hundred miles from me in Knoxville, Tennessee. He is actually the mayor of Knox County. Did you know that? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, he, so that, that's just one example, honestly, of the, of performers branching out and making a huge impact outside of wrestling. I mean, Jesse yeah. Ventura was a politician for a while. Yeah, he was governor of what, Minnesota. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he, I, I don't know where exactly he was, but I know that he was elected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Glenn Jacobs, as you mentioned, and there's a uh, women's wrestler in AEW right now. Her name is Britt Baker. She is a legitimate licensed Dr. dentist. Dr. Britt Baker. Dr. Britt Baker. Yeah. She's a legitimate dentist. Um, yeah. So she's, and that's just amazing to me. She's a doctor. She's living out her dream. I'm still trying to decide what I'm going to eat for lunch. Like it's, I'm not on the same playing field as these guys or, and gals, you know? Yeah, you gotta respect them for the what they do, you know? Uh, and the things they gotta learn to do in training, you know, some of the moves they make is, they're just unnatural. You know, Listen. like intentionally jumping up in the air and landing on your back. I can't imagine even trying that. <laughs> No, sir. Like, like I said, I, I struggle with the basic human movements yeah. of walking and chewing gum at the same time. Yeah. Definitely not going to be able to pull off all this intricate stuff. Yeah. So who's your favorite female wrestler? Uh, so I actually, uh, on a video series that I'm doing, I'm a huge advocate for, for women's wrestling. Mm. A huge advocate for women's wrestling. And when you look back at the history of women's wrestling, you know, it's it's a real shaky history to look at. Yeah. It's a real uh, fabulous moolah is often talked about in an amazing, amazing light. But then when you peel the curtain back, you know, we found out there are stories that don't necessarily lend themselves to that aura that she has. So, you know, I look at Trish Stratus. I look at Lita. Ooh, I look to her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we all did I think we all did yeah but you know when you look when you look in the 80s and 90s you know you had Wendy Richter you had uh Alundra Blaze who ended up becoming Medusa in WCW to now uh you know Sasha Banks Charlotte Flair uh Bailey who and Becky Lynch are the four horsewomen of WWE yeah. especially and Charlotte Flair I love her that Charlotte Flair is I've so I <laughs> she stood next to me uh, I was at an event like we weren't meeting or anything I was just like sitting ringside and I've never felt so tiny in my life really? like, I'm sitting here I'm looking up I'm like oh, okay yeah you're you're up there that's cool that's, how tall is she uh taller than me and that's and I've never looked it up because I don't want to know how much taller yeah uh, but you know th those people or those women have really progressed wrestling to where it's not women's wrestling anymore it's just wrestling yeah. And women happen to be doing it. Yeah. Have you watched Sue Young? I have, actually. I uh, love watching her. That is a great character. She does that so well. Sue Young is, I think, an example of, you know, Bray Wyatt, The Undertaker, where the yeah. character, she's invested so much in the character yeah. that 
she can make a storyline out of anything if you just give her five minutes and let her be herself. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's, it's great to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I love watching her. It's the undead. Yes, sir. <laughs> and there was another one that caught my eye, too. Um, it was, I think her name was Laurel Van Ness, the hot mess. You know, she comes out. Yeah, she's got, her. So she just, she was with NXT, which is a subsidy of WWE. And yeah. she just got released to go back to, and she's going to start going back to her old character. But she comes out and like half of her face is done in messed up makeup. And it's, she's just this frantic, uh, out there character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, yeah, this, I can relate to this. This her character is crazy and bounced off the walls. It's how it makes me feel when I have to pay a child support payment, honestly. Like I can relate to it real well. Yeah. Do you remember China? I do. You know, China holds a very special place in a lot of people's uh, hearts, especially as a female wrestler. You know, she won what was considered to be a men's championship. Yeah. Uh, she entered the Royal Rumble. It was, uh, China was groundbreaking. She was, yeah. Didn't she go on to make some movies? Didn't she make a few movies or maybe still does? I don't know. I, I, I'm not really sure. Um, but I know that in the in wrestling, I, I can I can speak to a lot of that as far as in wrestling goes. After wrestling, I'm not really sure how that whole thing panned out for her. Yeah. And the uh, ECW. Now, I loved the ECW. ECW before WWE bought them out and changed it all. You know, it was, it was really, it was something special. It was different. They were the first really hardcore wrestlers, I think. Yeah. Yes, sir. And they had some good ones. And there's still a huge following for ECW, you know, yeah. 20, 30 years later. Yeah. Francine, remember Francine? Francine was the baddest woman on the planet for a while. Yeah, yeah, she was. I don't, I don't particularly like these intergender matches. What about you? I just, I don't like them. So, I didn't. Uh, I did not like them for a very long time, and I saw one that kind of changed my opinion of it. Uh, it was well, two of them actually. One of them was between a couple. Uh, the man's name is Will Ospreay and the woman's name is B Priestley. And it was right around the time the pandemic happened. So they put on this, this thing, they put it on YouTube, I believe. And there wasn't like a, let me take this careful because you're a female. No, they was, it was going after each other. And I was like, this, this is equality. Like this yeah. is, this is that equal opportunity thing I've been hearing about. Yeah. And then Another one was a gentleman named Claudio Castagnoli, who is now known as Cesaro in WWE. He had a match against someone named Sarah Del Rey. And you couldn't have convinced me that this was an intergender match. This just looked like a fight. Yeah. So where I used to be uncomfortable with it, I've kind of gotten to a place where I'm like, you know what? As long as it's entertaining and it's not degrading to either side, I'm I'm at least open to watching it because I've seen a couple of really entertaining ones. Yeah, yeah, there are some good good ones, but as a rule, I would rather. I think one of my favorite matches. I don't remember that who it was is a female wrestler. It was about it was a hardcore match. Ended up about five or six of them in, involved, and 
supposed to be in one-on-one and it was tables, ladders, chairs, and chains and everything else. It was really great. I think that was on the, uh, what they call it, Riot, women, Riot Girls or something. Are you familiar with that one? I don't think so, no sir. Yeah, it, oh, the Riot Squad. Maybe that was it, maybe that was it. So yeah. I, I tell everybody, this is an amazing time to watch wrestling. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a girl dad before I'm anything. So I, wrestling is to the point now where when I was growing up, the women were not there because of their talent. Yeah. Uh, that was not the big draw. Now women are wrestlers and it's just, it's a very, when I was watching wrestling, I can't imagine being a dad trying to watch the women that would come on to wrestle with my daughter. Because there were no storylines, there was no, I'm not saying there was no talent, but there wasn't a lot of it. Yeah. And, you know, last night was a wrestling clinic between two women wrestlers, uh, Dr. Britt Baker and Hikaru Shida uh, had a wrestling match last night. And I could sit down with my daughter and say, look, you know, they've really perfected their craft. They've, you know, put a lot into this. They've, they're telling us a story. And you couldn't always do that with women's wrestling. So it's nice to see that evolution in the business. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Man, I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate you coming on my show and sharing what you shared about your life experiences. And it's definitely been fun talking about wrestling. Yes, sir. Mr. Holder, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, say to the families of people who unfortunately have a lot to uh, have a lot on them today, Memorial Day. Uh, you know, we obviously we all wish them, uh, wish for them to have as good of a day as they can today because the Memorial Day isn't about veterans. So I just want to say, you know, I I always feel bad saying happy Memorial Day. So I would just like for the families who have to deal with Memorial Day on a very personal level, I just wish them the best day that they can have today. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And folks, thanks for joining in or tuning in to Holding On With Holder. Please subscribe to my channel and feel free to share this video all over social media. And I will let you go, brother. And thanks again for being my guest. And you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you, sir. You as well. All right. Bye-bye.